This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. The former justice minister and noted human rights activist Erwin Kotler is blaming Russia for the scale and spread of COVID-19. And a retired nurse answers the call to return to the front lines. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. An 87-year-old New York City doctor who invented the rubella vaccine has joined the coronavirus fight. Dr. Stanley Plotkin, known as the godfather of vaccines, helped to eradicate rubella after his life-saving inoculation became available in 1969. Now he's working with pharmaceutical companies to help stamp out COVID-19. The 60s saw a rubella pandemic sweep across North America and Europe that caused impairments like blindness in children. drinking during the day in self-isolation? A new study shows many Americans are tippling in between Zoom calls with the boss while working from home. Alcohol.org says more than a third of respondents reported doing this, and beer is the drink of choice in most states, though residents of California and New York are more likely to choose a cocktail while at work in their home offices. BC's provincial health officer has attracted a legion of fans amid the COVID-19 pandemic. Among them, Vancouver-based shoe designer John Fluvog, who's planning to release a limited edition of the Dr. Henry shoe. All proceeds from the sale of the pink patent leather shoes will be donated to Food Banks BC. The designer described the doctor as an avid Fluvogian. Each pair will be stamped with a reminder to, quote, Be kind, be calm, and be safe. First it was bobbleheads. Now the top infectious disease specialist in the U.S. is getting a plush doll made in his likeness. I can't get involved with that peripheral stuff, bobbleheads. That's nice if people want to do it, but I have other things to worry about. A New England toy company has created a 12-inch version of 79-year-old Dr. Anthony Fauci, who often appears with President Trump at media briefings during the COVID-19 pandemic. Fauci's face also appears on socks and donuts. Trebek, diagnosed last year with stage 4 pancreatic cancer, has written a memoir. The answer is, Reflections on My Life comes out July 21st, the day before his 80th birthday. The longtime Jeopardy host will share personal anecdotes along with thoughts on everything from his favorite guests to spirituality and philanthropy. Trebek writes he wants people to know a little more about the person they've been cheering on for the past year. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. He's calling it China's Chernobyl moment. Former Justice Minister and leading human rights champion Erwin Kotler is blaming the Chinese government 
for covering up the pandemic during its early stages while punishing whistleblowers. Along with a hundred international politicians, he says Chinese leaders must be held to account for withholding the information for the first 40 days. I reached him in Montreal. You're saying that China is responsible for much of this pandemic. That's right. And that responsibility arises uh, from, and when I use the word China, I'd rather restrict it to the uh, CCP, the Communist Party leadership, because I always want to distinguish between the leadership and citizenry who are themselves the victims of this pandemic. China was responsible, however, for its international uh, spread through the suppression of information and the truth through the silencing and imprisoning of both doctors and dissidents who sought to sound the alarm and tell the truth, and through the false and misleading global uh, disinformation campaign that they continue uh, to conduct. Regrettably, uh, suppression of the truth did not allow other countries to both be aware of it, combat it, and initially even to prevent it. When did the Chinese Communist Party know about this, and how did they suppress it at the beginning? Well, they learned about it through their own uh, physicians. Uh, I may mention Dr. Ai Fen, who first was the director of emergency medicine at at Wuhan Hospital, which became the center for the origins and spread of the epidemic. She sought in early December to share this information uh, with some of her fellow doctors and, and uh, others. Uh, but, of course, uh, the response was that she ended up being uh, disappeared for her efforts. One of the people to whom she shared the information was Dr. Li, who'd become a kind of a hero in China, and regrettably a martyr, because he ended up dying of the uh, coronavirus, but not before he sought also uh, to sound the alarm. Uh, some seven others who were in touch with both of them have either been arrested or disappeared. And then journalists, citizen journalists, who sought to report upon it from China were themselves uh, arrested. You're saying that the Communist Party concealed the news about the virus for 40 days. Correct. What happened during those 40 days? Well, during those 40 days, uh, two things were happening. One, or maybe three, one was the suppression of the truth about it. Two was the uh, imprisonment and disappeared of those who were seeking to tell the truth about it. And number three, uh, some WHO complicity in it, because the WHO which itself had a responsibility uh, to sound the alarm, in, in fact, also was a party uh, to the uh, suppression of the truth and the information. Well, how was the uh, World Health Organization complicit? Because they continued to uh, praise China after they knew that this information was being uh, suppressed. They continued to put out information that it was okay to travel after it was clear uh, that, in fact, uh, travel needed uh, to be arrested at borders because the pandemic uh, was spreading. And, in fact, they did not require them to do uh, sound the alarm themselves but rather withheld or suppressed the information that had to be known. And so that was January 14th, I think, that they praised China for its handling and its transparency? Exactly right. And this was, in in effect, over a month after the thing was already known. 
our health minister, Patty Haidu, from your own party, she said the same thing. I mean, I remember scratching my head, even though I didn't have all the information then, uh, where she's saying uh, China's being really transparent. Yay, China. I mean, what was that? Here, too, we have a, a situation where, you know, Canada has always been a country that supports multilateralism, that's been a supporter of uh, UN and its institutions and the like, but has not been where it has had to be uh, su- sufficiently skeptical uh, where some of the institutions have been themselves engaged, uh, you know, in uh, misrepresentation and worse. When it comes to talking about China and dealing with China during the pandemic, is our government just naive or are they complicit or is it because uh, we have mm-hmm. a couple of political prisoners there and they're worried? Not complicit, but uh, there's always been sometimes a, a measure of uh, naivete um, in our foreign policy because, you know, we, we think well of the world. You've cited a study that says that 95% of this pandemic could have been avoided if China had disclosed properly. That's correct. Uh, and and that was one study, but there have been, you know, other authoritative, uh, you know, pronouncements to that effect. And while we're speaking, you know, China, the leadership is still engaged in suppressing scientific publications uh, so that the truth can still not continue uh, to unfold and rather uh, engage in a global disinformation campaign, uh, blaming others for causing the virus, be it the U.S. military or Italians and the like, and not taking a responsibility or accountability. And again, as I say, uh, suppressing the publication of studies now in scientific journals and the like, which would continue to expose the truth. What should we do about it? And, and when should we do something about this? We should adopt specific Magnitsky sanctions targeting those involved in the disappearance of doctors and dissidents, uh, because that will serve as a deterrent to others who may be trying to continue to perpetuate uh, this uh, falsity. And then we should uh, use the uh, international uh, organs uh, to allow the truth to be told and for China to be held accountable, whether regarding initiatives under the Biological Weapons Convention, which allows for UN initiatives of that kind. Should we hold the World Health Organization to account, and how? We have to say that because we take the UN seriously, because we take international law seriously, because we take uh, UN institutions seriously, then we have to have an inquiry, uh, among others, as to the uh, role and accountability of the WHO to indulging uh, you know, the Chinese and leadership, and therefore not allowing the story to be told, to look into the issue of the relationship between the Director General and uh, the CCP that may have uh, contributed to all this, Director General WHO. So yes, I think there too there needs to be accountability, and we can play a role in that regard. Erwin Kotler, thanks so much for joining us. Good speaking with you. That was former Liberal Justice Minister and human rights advocate Erwin Kotler. He's chairman of the Raoul Wallenberg Center for Human Rights. Governments issued an urgent call to retired health care workers asking them to return to work to deal with COVID-19. Nurse Robin Morash answered that call. I chatted with her on a break from the COVID Assessment Center at the Ottawa Hospital. So I've been retired for a year and a half. I retired in June of 2018. And I didn't actually receive a call. I received a call from a friend who had received a call from the hospital. She was asked if she wanted to return. She called me, and I called the hospital. So they were 
keen and eager. And within three hours, I had an offer letter sent to me by email to return to work. Which hospital is it? And is the problem that there's a a shortage of people or is it people with the wrong skills or uh, what's the situation? So it's the Ottawa Hospital here in Ottawa. And it was more they're trying to get all hands on deck. So they at that time, it was the middle of March, so they could deal with what was coming as opposed to there being a shortage. What kind of work were you doing before you retired, and, and what kind of work are you doing now? So before I retired, my title was Advanced Practice Nurse for Euro-Oncology. I had a clinical practice uh, working with patients with bladder cancer. I also had a management role managing the Wellness Beyond Cancer program in our oncology program and also a smoking cessation program. So my background was all oncology. Mm-hmm. The role I'm in for now is I'm working as one of a group of leaders in managing our, it's called the Brewer Assessment Center. So the Ottawa Hospital is running a, a COVID assessment center. We're, we're the people that do the screening, our team. Wow. So you're so actually... I was a manager and I'm back in as a manager. Are you physically doing the screens? I am not. Our team is. Uh, this is really on the front lines, right? Yes. Can you give me an idea of, of what's involved? How is the assessment center running? Is it one of those drive-bys or, you know, where is it running and how is it running? It's been set up. It's been working since the 13th of March. I started on the 23rd of March. It's actually housed in, a, in an arena. We have a school, a small private school that we're working out of as our headquarters. And then we walk across the street, the arena, a community center arena is where all the screening is done. The patients enter through one entrance and basically walk through a series of steps through the arena, and then they get to the swabbing area, and then they leave. I imagine everyone working there has to have full protective gear? Everybody that's working in the arena, yes, they do. When we're working in headquarters, we don't. We just have our masks. But as we enter the arena, we do wear full protective gear. As managers, we remain in headquarters as much as possible, and we're reusing some of our gear. There, we're, the staff are wearing full PPE as required for droplet precautions. We're not using full PPE that you would use in a hospital setting that would be required for aerosol generating precautions. So there's a difference in the gear that we wear. Okay, I don't understand. Can you please explain? Yes, so for droplet precaution, we wear a surgical mask and a shield. If you're going to be causing the patient to cough, or if the patient, anything going on in an intensive care unit or other areas in the hospital, you would require an N95 mask and a full face shield. We're not wearing that level of protection. We're wearing what's appropriate for us as per infection control and also health and safety. How many people do you see a day in the assessment center, and, and uh, are you confident that everybody who needs a test is getting one? We really range in volumes, goes down, went down on Easter weekend, but uh, we're averaging probably about 250 a day. We can certainly see more. The word is out there as to who can be screened. Uh, the categories of patients that can be screened has opened up much, much wider, and we have the capacity to do it. How do you feel about being on the, uh, the front lines? First of all, you know, it sounds like you didn't hesitate very long. What made you decide that you really wanted to go back in the middle of all this? I think a couple things. One was I was in contact with colleagues and friends that were still working, and I was hearing just how crazy it was within the hospital setting because they're all, in those stages, they were planning. And the other thing is, once a nurse, always a nurse. And I just couldn't sit back and watch people, you know, struggling and also my community. It was a way to help out my community. What's it like to be back at work? 
in the midst of all this, it's actually really good. We have a wonderful team, a col- good collaboration between a variety of different organizations within Ottawa, the Ottawa Hospital, the Children's Hospital of East Ontario, our colleagues at the community health centers, security, housekeeping are all different private firms, and it's working very well. How does your family feel about it? Well, I only have my husband at home with me. My children are grown, um, and he's fine. He knows what I do, and he knows uh, you know, the protection that we take. So no issue there? No, no issue. Do you have a message for other uh, nurses who are thinking of going back to work or other healthcare workers? I think you have to do what you're comfortable with. Um, everybody needs our help, and we're trained. We've got the background to do this. And uh, But people really do need to be comfortable with where it is within their personal life and who they have at home. Okay, Robin Morish, thank you so much, and we appreciate your work so much. Well, it's my pleasure. It's, uh, it's all for the community. Thank you. That was Nurse Robin Morash. She came out of retirement to run the COVID-19 Assessment Center at the Ottawa Hospital. I'm Libby Zneimer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. And that brings us to the end of this edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Zneimer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Hadi. Christine Ross and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.